Fine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And it's the Fine Pair Podcast. I was going to say Friday, and I was like, no, it's Monday. I mean, I don't even know what's happening anymore. <laughs> Time has lost all meaning. It has. I mean, come on. It's just like crazy. Middle You're of not still on island time, I don't think. I wish I was. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell, I'll tell you about what I've been drinking, but first, what have you been drinking, Zach? I know. I'm going to keep this short because I'm, I'm kind of bursting at the seams with curiosity about the McCurdy wedding. So um, I think the, the, the standout thing for me over the last week was uh, a really beautiful bottle of Chateauneuf de Pop Blanc from uh, Domaine Grand Veneur. Big fan of Rhone Whites, uh, especially with some age. Beautiful bottle. Lovely texture. Uh, had it with some risotto. Yeah, it was great. Loved it. But, uh, okay, it's like now it's time for the for the start of the show. Adam. Well, first of all, Timothy McCurdy got married, you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congrats, Tim. Yeah, congrats. Uh, and, gosh, I drank so much delicious stuff. Uh, it was a wedding weekend after all, so let me let me try to run through it. Well, first of all, I do want to – let me take it one back because I, I have to shout out one place. So I wasn't on a sure. podcast last week because I was already traveling to Puerto Rico. So – the weekend before, everyone knows I had a bachelor party, and I do want to just shout out to these guys. I went to one of the best uh, bars I've been to in a long time in the U.S. Uh, called Room for Improvement. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw that I said that, but it's just a great, great bar in Portland, Maine. They're doing really fun stuff. Excellent, excellent classic cocktail program. I had a delicious martini. I know some people had amazing daiquiris. They had a really cool Negroni that was uh, you know, infused with banana. Really cool. Anyways, but to Puerto Rico now. So. We got there, and we stayed at the Caribe Hilton, which is famous for inventing the pina colada. Or that's the claim. Uh, not the best pina colada I've ever had. Gonna say. Yeah. Had a few of them. They do a better at Long Island Bar here in New York. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure that the place near around the corner from you does the, the, a better pina colada. But, like, my kind of takeaway from that is, like, that's what happens when – you invented a drink, but now you're owned by a massive corporate entity called Hilton, and like everything is just mass produced, probably. And like, I, I just wish they would have taken a lot more care and pride in the fact that they invented the pina colada. Like, there's obviously signs everywhere on the property, um, like we're the inventor of the pina colada, and like you can get it at the pool bar, you can get it at the beach bar, you can get it in the lobby bar. Like, they're making it everywhere, but I wish they almost had like a dedicated place that was like, this is the bar to come get the pina colada made, you know, by the best bartenders we have on property, et cetera. Like it just, it was fine. And that was kind of a bummer, but there, and you could tell there's a lot of people who also just come to the hotel to have the uh, pina colada in the lobby because they've read everything. And I'm just like, if this is, uh, yeah, like, especially if you're a pina colada aficionado, this is not the move. Mm. So, you know, I wish they would have done better, but you know, what, what can you do? It's a, again, it's a corporate property. Um, so Hilton up your game. Uh, but then, <laughs> uh, you know, I had some amazing drinking experiences. One of the things I will say is like, if you're, if you're the host of cocktail college and you pride yourself on, you know, really knowing your drinks, you better come correct. And I will say, Tim McCurdy had the best cocktails I have ever had at a wedding bar ever. Huh. Just incredible. Like, very, very well-made martinis, uh, daiquiris, just, like, really delicious drinks. Also, I mean, he had, you know, incredible bartenders as guests who just, you know, I think helped him know his shit. But, I mean, for the most part, right, this is the Tim show, and he really he really dialed it in, and the and the drinks were great. Um, also went to a fun cocktail bar, uh, 
in sort of the Condado area of uh, Puerto Rico called the Jungle Bird, where I did have a Jungle Bird, and it was good, but not the best Jungle Bird I've ever had. But the cool thing there was that it's always fun to go with someone who knows more than you to places like that. And the person who obviously knows more than me who was with us there was Brian Miller. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, really knows his rums as, you know, probably one of the most celebrated tiki bartenders in the country. And he was just, like, scanning the back bar. And he's like, I love to do this when I come and just see, like, what they may have forgotten about. And he just noticed on the back bar this 15-year-old bottle of Pusser's Navy Rum. Ooh. And he was – and so, like, he just asked the bartender, like, hey, how much is a pour of that? And they had, like, of course, look it up in the system, like, didn't really know. And they are like, oh, it's $10. (laughs) And he turned to me and a bunch of people was like, we should just drink the whole bottle. Like, they don't know what – like, they don't know what they have. Let's drink the whole bottle. So we poured out, you know, I think 10 glasses of it amongst people of us who had – we had all gone to the bar from the sort of welcome happy hour the night before the wedding – and it was just a really cool experience for like ten of us to cheers, and we literally finished the rest of what was in the bottle in those ten glasses. Nice. But it was really fun to like have this cheers and um, you know enjoy this rum that I had really you know kind of once in a lifetime experience because he said it was like it was an old label. He said he thinks it was discontinued like almost ten years ago. So it's like this rum also had just been sitting. Yeah, which is which was just a super cool experience, and I loved. Um, so, yeah, so that was uh, some of the drinking experiences. Great wine. Um, they had a, you know, they, they served, um, gosh, they served just incredible, incredible wines at the at the wedding. They served um, some Raj Par wine, delicious sparkling. Um, but, uh, again, the thing that I, I remain the most blown away by was just how good the cocktails were. Uh, and great ice and great glassware. So, Tim, nice. congratulations, Job well done, mate. Job well done. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that that was my uh, that's what I've been drinking recently, which was all uh, in honor of Mr. Timothy McCurdy. So Zach, today you kind of want to lead us off on our topic. So so what you got? Yeah, so you know we got an interesting email from uh, listener Caleb. Um, so he's on a couple of kind of podcast topic ideas. We might touch on one of these another time. But one of the things he talked he mentioned was you know sort of. He framed it around Texas, which I believe is maybe where uh, Caleb is, but I think it's actually a better question to discuss more broadly, which is a sort of potential exodus of winemakers from California and sort of is, are are the economics driving, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily the wine industry out of California, because that's certainly not happening, but maybe what is exciting and new, um, you know, he kind of framed it like is the same thing happening uh, in wine that's happening in tech where, you know, a lot of these uh, companies and startups and stuff are, are moving other places out of California. And, you know, I, I wanted to distill this down a little further because I think that there's a lot there and, and it's a little bit hard to kind of wrap your head around that. But but to me, the, the more interesting conversation and I think the more kind of curious thing to ponder on is you know, we've talked a ton about Napa. I was just there recently. Adam, obviously, you've been there a lot in the last couple of years as well. But it's kind of this thing of like, is someone going to be able to out Napa Napa? And mm-hmm. I, I think I'll let you take a, a lead on responding to this because I have a take that I'm not, I'm not sure you'll agree with. But but what what do you think first? Okay, I don't think there will ever be a Napa, another Napa in our lifetime. Okay, and I guess I kind of feel like. 
we are where we are right now in our lifetime with the quote-unquote famous wine regions. Burgundy, mm-hmm. Bordeaux, Tuscany, Piedmont, Rioja, whether or not you, you know, you're a massive fan of it, it still is, let's be honest, a, fa- a very famous collectible wine region where the wines are sold at auction all the time, Napa. I think outside of that, there will be – can there be famous wineries from other places? Sure. But I just think that those – I think that Napa specifically was able to emerge at a moment in time where America was also entering its buying power relevance in the world of wine. And there was a larger group of people coming online who were very, very, very interested in wine and obviously wanted some sort of a domestic region to champion along with the regions they were already collecting or learning about in Italy, Spain, and France, basically. And I guess we could say, let's, let's say Germany, right, for, for a little bit with Riesling, but even, yeah. even not as much, right? So fine, because don't come at me that you say I left that out. Besides that... I just think I, I don't see there being in the in our lifetime again, right? I'm not saying this might not happen in two lifetimes when climate change is fucked at all, and basically the the hottest wine region is basically in the north of Canada. Like I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is I think for now the way that wine regions emerge is just not anywhere near the way I don't think has the ability to emerge in the way that Napa emerged. And Napa did emerge, whether we like it or not, through the judgment of Paris mm-hmm. and the fact that at that time there was just far fewer places writing about alcohol and and wine in general. And so, therefore, this huge news event was taken more seriously by the wider world, right? By right, right now, like, you know... A ton of different publications could say this is the best region for wine in America right now. And, like, it's not going to get picked up for coverage by a lot of other publications, maybe by the regional publications in those places, but not in the same way that, you know, having the, the you know, the great luck to have, you know, the Time magazine writer there to write the piece to then get picked up and, and go everywhere else is just a stroke of luck that no one – I don't see another region – being able to have and you've seen a lot of regions try to even recreate the judgment of paris and nobody cares yeah and you know i think what's more interesting now is consumers are also looking for the winery right when we write about this is a great winery we see lots of traction for the winery and the winery sees lots of traction for themselves right but i don't know if you can do that in the same way with a a region Mm. and then i also don't think you will ever see the amount of money flow in as fast as then you saw flow into Napa and create this just massive kind of Disneyland of wine in the same and money obviously is flowing into other wine regions. Right? I'm not arguing that I'm not saying that there aren't people who are making not making investments in Washington and Oregon and, you know, upstate New York and Chile and Argentina. Like, I'm not saying there aren't investments being made, but I don't think you will ever see the investments in our lifetime that were that were made and are continued to be are continuing to be made at the level they are being made in Napa. Yeah. 
So I think that it's entirely plausible to me that the answer to this question is both yes and no. And I think it's yes, potentially, when it comes to a perhaps hard to quantify, but but real sort of sense of like wine quality and perhaps even like wine desirability. But it's, I think, no in terms of the Napa that we're also talking about as a as a destination, as a lifestyle. And I think, you know, we are at this place where, and it's so striking every time I'm there, and I imagine it strikes you this way too, where for all the times that I sit there and think like, man, there's stuff that I don't like about how Napa does, you know, conducts its business as a broader entity, right? Like things are very expensive. Uh, They are obviously because of that, very inaccessible to many people. Uh, You know, the, the approach seems to be, you know, man, there's a little more interesting stuff going on in various pockets, but you know, a lot of this very similar styles of wine, etc. But then you go there and if you, you know, most of the year, you're likely to get very nice weather. It's very scenic. It's close to a ma- to major cities. And you go like, oh yeah, there's a reason beyond the judgment of Paris, a reason beyond the critical scores. And it's because it is just, functionally very nice to be in Napa Valley. Like long before it was a famed wine region, it was still prized ag land and prized vacation land because it's so nice. And that is something that other wine regions will have a harder time offering because it's just uh, something of a quirk of Northern California climate that, you know, Washington state, as much as I love it, doesn't have the same deal. It has parts of Eastern Washington that are, hot as balls in the summer and cold as you know super cold in winter and like that's fine not necessarily bad for the wine but as far as making it a great attractive year-round tourist destination probably not so i think it's totally possible that you know tastes may diverge from what and may already be diverging from what napa does best or does most Mm -hmm. and i don't think it's impossible to believe that in 15 or 20 years the kind of full-bodied relatively high alcohol structured Cabernet based wines that still dominate Napa and dominate, you know, sort of point total based publications and stuff like that. You know, as that generation that really gravitate towards those wines moves away, maybe, you know, either dies or drinks less because they're older or whatever. And the younger generations coming up, the the parts of them that are interested in wine or maybe not interested in that same kind of wine. Again, it would not shock me to learn that, um, you know, because like Bordeaux has been on the outs, maybe having a comeback, but has been on the outs in a lot of ways for for a while for sort of somewhat similar reasons. Not exactly, but point is like when your wine region is very expensive, makes one style of wine mostly, and it's a style of wine that's like heavily associated with a certain generation. It wouldn't shock me to believe that in, like I said, in a in a in, within our lifetimes, hopefully within our lifetimes, uh, that is no longer the most popular style of wine in America. Yeah, but I th- I think that that will ebb and flow, right? Because I think generationally, fine. So maybe so our generation already is much more fan of high acid, lighter yeah. bodied wines, right? But we have no idea what Gen, what are the Alpha now, is going to like when they come into their drinking world, and if they want to be different than their parents, they might say, "Oh, I'm I, you know, I actually have rediscovered Bordeaux," and I do think most people will tell you that Bordeaux is still a decent investment. I yeah. think, you know, I what I'm saying which is different from you, is not only do I not think there will be another region like Napa on the entire sort of lifestyle world, and 
you know, again, I think that was a, a point in time for all the things you said, the fact that it's proximity to San Francisco and it's proximity to amazing produce and the weather and, 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 and. I also don't think there's going to be a region that as a whole will be able to to demand the prices that the current big regions demand. I don't think we're going to see another one of those regions emerge in our lifetime. And you could say, about the Willamette Valley? No. Some of the Willamette Valley, fine. But I think some of the Willamette Valley is already Willamette Valley's already fallen out of favor with people. Because I think a lot of people don't think that a majority that all of those Pinot Noirs are that interesting. I I think that there are other regions that are just kind of doing the kind of wines that already are collectible, right? In in a different but kind of same way. Like maybe if we had a region that just emerged, like I don't know, again, northern Greece, Xenomavro, whatever. Maybe that's possible. Maybe. In our lifetime, a bunch of people decide to start collecting. This random grape you can't get anywhere else. But do I think we're going to see a bunch of people want to start collecting, you know, New Zealand Pinot Noirs? No. I don't. Not as a whole. Maybe a few producers, yeah, that have just become super famous with Psalms and high-end wine collectors, sure. But not as a whole. At all. I just, I don't think that that's possible anymore. And I think Napa told the story in such a way, so so well, so strategically, you know, everyone else is trying to be the and to them, right? Like, I mean, so, sorry, the, the or to them. It's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, Napa or Paso. Well, yeah, but Paso has its own issues in a lot of ways. And the, some of the people will tell you the best wines from Paso are the wines that actually aren't the ores of Napa. They're, they're wines that taste like Southern Rhone variety, you know, Southern Rhone wines. They're not Cabernet wines. Yeah. So I I think it's it's an interesting exercise but like when I was thinking about this this morning and you know you mentioned it to me again I, I really just can't think of another region of which it will happen for so then the only way it would happen is there's got to be something that comes out of fucking left field and what even is that at this point? Okay, so here's where my here's where my curveball comes. Okay. So so the thing the one thing that you have to think about and you mentioned this and and I think it's worth taking a moment to expand upon it slightly is part of what set Napa on its course is that it was a the first wine region in America that in the eyes of wine connoisseurs, the press, etc., could say with some confidence because of the judgment of Paris and some other things too, that it could compete with the fine wines of Europe. And you had here in the United States a large potential market for domestic wine because you know there are there were there were and remain people who who are sort of like you know oh i prefer european wines but there are a lot of people here who liked wine who would have been happy to drink domestic but up until that point ish the story was that american wine sucked and that's not true but that was the story that was told in a lot of cases that's why so much of the all of the most popular wines uh, in America up until that point were almost all imports, right? All European imports. So what is the parallel to that? China? Maybe? Like, would it shock me to find that in 20 years, 30 years, there is a Chinese equivalent of Napa Valley? I mean, I know there's a ton of investment. There's obviously an enormous potential audience. And it's an audience that would be, you would have to think, incentivized to support a domestic wine region. I mean, they already do to some extent. Now, 
I've tasted very little wine from China. Uh, only if you know, only probably a maybe a dozen bottles over the last you know half dozen years or something like that. And most of what I've tasted has been stuff that is at least in some sense made for export or at least is available obviously here in the United States. And to my taste, it's been sort of made to more uh, broadly kind of hit those sort of in you know international market benchmarks more than being perhaps interesting but like if you were to ask me where on earth could you find a wine region that would ri- that could be the new napa china's the only place i can think of and i don't know where i mean not my not my area of expertise but just in terms of a, a simple kind of uh, i don't know uh counting exercise that's where i would place my bet so i thought that was interesting too and uh and, and i i was thinking that might be where you would go with it um and as I was talking about, yeah, where's the where's the emerging region with buying power? The, the issue right now is number one, China has a huge copyright issue, mm-hmm. right? They don't protect it at all. There's actually, it's really, I mean, if you if you want to just like have a lot of fun right now, you should go to uh, the subreddit uh, for the wine subreddit because there is a, a a person on that subreddit right now posting photos from a big wine fair that is currently happening in China. Um, and if you look at some of the photos they are posting, they are wines made in China that are complete ripoffs of big wines. There are people making wines that look like Romani Conti, that look like Lafitte, that look like, um, you know, Stag's Leap, like just blatantly ripping these wines off with names that sound like Romani Conti but aren't. Uh, Penfolds, mm-hmm. all the big wines they know that are famous. And. You know, I think also the population as a whole just hasn't really truly adopted wine as a drinking thing at this point. Like a lot of studies have shown that a lot of it is around gifting and, uh, you know, middle class lifestyle, et cetera. I think what ha- and what they will have to have is their own sort of Robert Parker. You've also seen in China uh, in the wine world right now, like a lot of, you know, I don't want to say has been. Well, has been's has been wine critics from the U.S. who are moving to China and setting up their operations there and operating out of China to sort of dictate to the Chinese what to drink instead of allowing the Chinese to find their own spokesperson who has more of a Chinese palate and, you know, chooses the wines that are good for that group of people, right, or are something that they that they would celebrate. I think that's also how that could happen. Um and, you know, you are seeing investment, but again, sort of copycat investment at this point in time. So I think mm-hmm. that all of those things will need to shift and sort of, again, you're also having that happen in an economy and in a country that's a little bit unstable with communism and the crackdowns, right? Wine was this amazing thing for a while that was growing, 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 and now it's shrinking because of the, you know, the restrictions on gifting, the tariffs, you know, restricting the wines that are coming into the country now, Etc. So it's it's not as like you talk to most people who make fine wine around the world, and like China is not the bull market that it was. It's it's much more of a bear market. But um, it, but again, this might be the argument for why a domestic wine scene could perhaps be more successful there. I don't know. Um, but I mean, I like I said, it's not that I think it's overwhelmingly likely. It's just if you asked me to pick a place, that would be my bet. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, I, I just, yeah, I think, I think the thing that people want us to say, um, besides like some of the other just new world wine, new world, whatever, you know, 
younger wineries, not even younger wineries, but like, you know, the South American, Australian, et cetera, is that we're going to say that there's going to be another American wine region. And I think that's never going to happen. I think there will be yeah. great wineries in these regions that will become celebrated. I think, you know, Virginia has the opportunity to have five or ten incredible wineries that people like actually collect and follow, etc. But do I think the region as a whole? I'm not so sure. I, I just don't think so because of all of the extenuating circumstances, circumstances we've talked about. Same with the Finger Lakes. I think that they are going to continue to be incredible wines made there. But again, we also have talked about the fact that like the main wine, at least so far, for the Finger Lakes is Riesling, and Riesling as a whole is not that popular. So, you know, how does – like Napa just landed on the perfect thing, right? Like at the time, it also was growing Cabernet Sauvignon, and people like that wine. Yeah. It's just accessible. It's, I mean, it's the same reason people like Bordeaux. Like Bordeaux is really easy to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's why I think a lot of people thought Mendoza was going to be that, but like Malbec's just not that interesting. Sorry, I said it. <laughs> I said it. I said it. I said it. I said it. At oh. least you waited till the end of the episode. Yeah, I had to have a hot take. Anyways, uh, let us know what you think, though. If you completely disagree with us, I love that. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. If you agree with us, I like that too. Uh, let us know if you have any predictions what wine regions you think could become uh, the next it guy or gal or they or them or whatever let us know uh podcast which one do you think and why and again i think that you should not take offense to this if you are a re- if you're someone who makes wine in a region that's not napa and i'm telling you that i don't think that's a possible like it's a possibility for your entire region to become the next napa i think it's still very possible for you to have a winery that is incredibly celebrated in this country and beyond this country internationally we don't you know what i mean i I think we're just past the time in our wine drinking history where an entire region is going to be lauded but that's just let's know what you think podcast.com and uh zach i'll talk to you on friday sounds great thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the vine pair podcast network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.